how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome back to the show. In this episode, I sat down with Linda Palmer, producer with over 25 credits to her name and the author of Shooting for the Stars, A Producer's Journey. In this interview, we talk about her love for Halloween, telling personal stories, her company, Runaway Productions, good and bad pitch videos, networking globally online, and pitching to professionals on LinkedIn, along with her decision to leave LA to live in North Carolina. Shooting for the Stars is for those creators tired of facing rejection. Using her case studies, you'll learn what to do to avoid costly mistakes and get your film finished. We also reference in my interview with John Albert, the documentary filmmaker behind Cuba and the Cameraman. You can listen to that back in episode 18 of the podcast. Here's my call with Linda Palmer. You know, I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I thought I wanted to work in news. And um, so I went to school for that and I was studying it and when i saw myself in front of a camera i said you know i'm not that's not for me <laughs> i'd rather be behind the camera and i think just you know i was writing but i was also starting to write narrative at the time and as opposed to news stories and i just sort of grad you know gradually went that way instead of working in news it's a, some of that's an odd choice too. Like I interviewed a guy who did a movie called Cuba and the Cameraman and it's a, he filmed this thing over decades and yeah. like five or seven years in, he's like, I need to be in this story. Why do you think some documentary filmmakers feel the need to be in the story? You know, I don't know about that so much because I haven't done a lot of work with documentary films, but we just, um, since COVID uh, in 2020, we started looking at a, a different way to tell stories that could be um, smaller, you know, less, much uh, smaller productions. And um, so my husband and I bought a camera, black magic. We bought all the sound equipment, lighting and stuff and decided that we would start with, with um, Halloween because we love the subject. You know, why, do, why are people so involved in it? And just all kinds of aspects about that. And um so that's how we got to that. But I think it's kind of an, an interesting thing that I wanted to be in news and tell those kind of stories and went to narrative. And at the, you know, near the end of my career, I'm going back to documentaries. And I just think it's a more personal thing. You know, I think you you tell th stories that mean more to you. Um, there's a lot of research in it. Well, you know, like the other thing too is like just because it's Halloween doesn't mean you can't go deep. Like I think of Chuck Klosterman will write about pop culture, but he goes like at a scientific approach to it. How do you sure. kind of start to to go about your research for the ha Halloween? Well, for us, I mean, there's so many different aspects. Our first um, episode for the series was the misconception of witches, and um, I've always kind of had an obsession with witches. So learning about what it means to be a modern day witch is really the focus of that that particular piece. Um, we do cover a little bit about the history of um, witches and 
you know, there's a ton of documentaries about that. But then we really focus on uh, four different modern day witches and really their story about their practice, their lifestyle, and and that sort of thing. So it's really um, just an illuminating process. You know, the second one uh, that just came out uh, this Halloween was, um, it's called Halloween Obsessed, but this episode is called Haunted Attractions. And so it gets a little bit into the history of like where Haunted Attractions started, but it really does, again, focus on four types of haunters that are current, obviously current day haunters from a home haunter, a yard haunter, uh, to a giant, you know, haunter in Pennsylvania called Field of Screams that really rivals like theme parks. So, um, but then it does give the history, you know, so there's a lot of um, the research that goes back into that, you know, you find uh, one of the things that we found was there's a lot of history from France that um, really sort of um, influenced haunted, haunted attractions. So um, some of the more interesting things are like morgues used to display their dead in the windows. And so the more gruesome the dead, the more, the bigger the audience it drew. And so like, if you think about that, that's kind of like what a haunted attraction is, the more gruesome it is, you know, it gets a lot of audience reaction and stuff. So just so you know, in Madame Tussauds, the museum that, that obviously um, really affects or influenced a lot of haunted attractions. Are there... Are there less so in some of that sense because America is so early? Like, like if we're going to assume that ghosts are real, it seems like there would be more ghosts in places where people were for a longer period of time. Did you find anything like that about your studies in France? Uh, so where we were going with the haunted attractions was more the influence of a particular place that people would go to be frightened, right? Um, we do have another episode that is coming out next year that's paranormal that deals more with ghosts. And it, that actually is a two-part um, piece. It's The first part is about mediums and psychics and their connection to the afterlife and really kind of breaking down how you can reach out to the afterlife um, and communicate and you know, have some understanding. And then the second part of it is the paranormal investigator side. And that's people that go out searching for the ghosts and trying to, you know, have some sort of contact with them. So that should, that should be pretty interesting. I'll probably have more to say about ghosts, (laughs) you know, after that comes out. Where can people uh, find some of your work at? Well, the number one place is our website. It's runawayproductions.tv. And there's links to all of our social. uh, Most of my short films are on my YouTube channel, which is linked there. Um, And then most of the stuff we've done is on either Tubi or YouTube, Amazon. And tell me about, um, so you live in North Carolina now. Tell me a little bit about the decision to move. We're both in North Carolina, just for those listening. Tell me about your decision to move. Did you already have enough relationships in place where you felt like you could continue a you know, career in the business? Or do you think things have kind of leveled out with the internet? Um, I'm a big advocate that I don't think you need to live in LA to create film. I think that there's a lot of... Um, 
first of all, there's a lot of filmmakers all over the country, right? They teach film in almost every college. And in some hubs like Wilmington or, you know, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, um, there's more people than others like New York, you know, but um, I think it's growing and you don't necessarily have to be in a big hub. I think also, you know, the way that you tell a story, you can tell a story with an iPhone these days, you know, so there's a lot of technologies really change that. Um, For us, uh, we moved from Long Beach, California to Wilmington, the Wilmington area. So, you know, we moved from one coast to another and really that, that move was more focused on um, sort of a semi-retired lifestyle. My husband's a little older than me. And so, you know, he's retiring, um, but we both still work in the documentary space. And really what I'm doing these days is I'm really pitching my projects more. Um, Still, obviously we're still both doing the documentaries and, you know, obviously if there were opportunities to, work on any film, whether it's my own or someone hires me as a director or whatever, uh, I can always go and work on on a film wherever it's at. I mean, if you think about it, most films aren't shot in LA. They're not shot in New York. Um, they're shot all over the place. So, you know, the a lot of times they're getting, bringing some crew from those areas, but a lot of the crew is coming from local areas where they shoot at because they get incentives and things like that. So as far as some of those, and you may have been, you've already had a lot of relationships, but in terms of maybe building new relationships, are you doing that online? Are you pitching over Zoom? Like how can someone um, who's in North Carolina or somewhere like that maybe make those connections and find people to collaborate with? I think, you know, first of all, you can make those connections really in a lot of different filmmaking forums, right? Like Stage 32 or, you know, there's all kinds of networking groups. Um, I do accept pitches from people. You never know when you might find a story that you just want to tell. You know, I I don't just tell my own stories. I have produced other people's um, scripts. So it's a little tougher these days because our focus is more documentary driven. But again, I'm not going to say I wouldn't be interested in doing something if it really just totally appealed to me, right? Um, But I think... Zoom opens up the doors for a lot of people. You know, I, I think most, a lot of the people I know have meetings through Zoom around the world. I mean, we have a project that we're pulling together that um, we originally thought needed to be shot in Africa. It's called Cat Dex. It's an anti-poaching project. And we had multiple Zoom meetings with, um, first of all, a partner that we met and brought on board who is in Africa, uh, South Africa, and then uh, various wildlife trainers and, um, you know, personnel that way. Um, but actually we've also brought on another producer from Turkey. And so, uh, they have a, a studio that does a lot of work, like the volume where you can change the um, backgrounds and stuff really easily and, uh, electronically or through the the LED lighting and all that and, or virtual LEDs. And, so actually we're looking at probably filming quite a bit in Turkey. So, you know, you never know, you never know how a project's going to come together. Um, you know, I think, I think you should be open about it. Like as a, as a filmmaker or writer, maybe not 
necessarily say, oh, my project has to be shot wherever, right? If you can find uh, financers or crew or whatever in another area, um, then just open your mind to that. Maybe like if those cases where someone's pitching to you, other than like intangibles or you're or connected to a cause perhaps, like are there certain things that would make it a no-brainer for you to say yes? Like they've already done X, Y, Z. You know, it depends on on what um, what it would be about. Like if someone was trying to bring me on as a director to direct something, um, you know, if the project really appealed to me and I really wanted to tell that story, I would be more inclined to be involved in it, right? If someone's uh, pitching to me to produce and to raise the funding and pull the film together from start to finish, that's a that's a lot harder to do. You know, I'm a freelance producer. Um, it takes it takes years to pull a project together, you know, and just, you know, luck and timing, <laughs> a myriad of other things. Um, you know, if someone appealed to something that meant something to me, that might, you know, like Halloween. <laughs> If there was a project that had some connection to that, I might be more inclined to do it or, you know, that's not my only, it's not my only love, but, you know, if you find out something, if you literally, if you find out something about who you're pitching, right? Like I, I pitch a lot on um, LinkedIn and I find that I connect with a lot of producers and actually a lot of a lot of professionals on LinkedIn. But um, you know, when you're researching the people and and going to IMDB and finding out what their their body of work is and what their interests might be, you know, you can sort of narrow down the way that you might pitch and sort of improve your the ability to. <laughs> just to give you just to give you an example. Um I had I have another Halloween project called Spirit Halloween, and it's um, it, we actually have renamed it since then. It's called Wickoween, and it's sort of a sequel to a original movie that we did, had done in the past called Halloween Party. And I pitched that to um, a producer who had done Hocus Pocus and Chucky and a lot of other things, a lot of other Halloween material. So because I knew that, I figured he would there would be a chance he would be more likely. Well, he responded, uh, it's David Kirshner. He responded and he was in the middle of working on Hocus Pocus too, but you know, he couldn't do it at the time, but it opened up the ability for us to talk. And so we really started this dialogue and found out that we're obviously both super Halloween fanatics. And um, so it just opened up a door for us to recently uh, interview him for our series for another episode. So, you know, that's kind of a, a, you know, one way that you could look at um, just developing a relationship that could move into a different area. And maybe it's not the way that you started in the sense that I was pitching him a project for a feature film, but he ended up being involved in our, one of our documentaries. So I've gotten pitched on LinkedIn and I'm not even really, you know, someone, a decision maker per se, but I've seen some that are terrible. Um, just like, please, please, please help me kind of thing. What are you doing? That's like, obviously that's the wrong way to go, but what are some things you're doing that's differently to start the conversation? 
Yeah, that that's totally not the way to do it. You know, and and I do get a lot of pitches even just to my email because it's out there on my website. So, you know, it that's just not the way you pitch and it just shows a real unprofessionalism and you can pretty much just disregard that. I think that, you know, if someone puts in the time to recognize or to um, review your work, work and approach you from a personal basis, that is going to open up a lot more doors. You know, it'll open up a lot more just interest, right? Um, one of the things that we do when we're pitching, because um, I have several people I work with is, you know, just introduce ourselves and say, you know, we'd love to connect. We're, you know, um, working professionals in the industry, uh offer some links to some of the stuff that we have, or maybe comment on something that they've done. They might have an interest in just seeing some of our work so they know the quality of it and looking forward to just building a relationship and maybe working together in the future. You know, that's kind of a generic thing, but at least you're starting a conversation in a way that you're, first of all, saying something about something they've done. So it's interesting you've, and especially if you, you should be authentic about that, you should have watched it or have some sort of um, real interest in it. And, and then, um, you know, just offer some of your work in the way of a trailer or something that they can, that's not going to take up a lot of time, but they can look at it and, and maybe they might have an interest in it. Right. And then, and then follow up, you know, I, so many people say that, one of my strengths is persistence. And I, it's probably because I have a really long background in sales, but I always follow up, you know, I follow up with people over years, you know, and when they see you constantly out there doing things or the best thing yet is to offer to do something for the person by a certain day. And um, if you do it, if you, you know, hold to those um, sort of commitments that you put out there, then they're going to be more responsive to you. You know, you're becoming more reliable, right? I teach a copywriting course. The worst thing I see is if someone just writes a generic thing and sends it to a hundred people, you want to be like surgical with what you're saying. Absolutely. Do you, have, do you have a favorite way now, or does it depend on the project? Cause it's like, you can make a concept teaser a lot of people understand that like, if I'm asking you to read a 120 page screenplay, that's a big ask. If I want you to watch a two minute trailer, that's a little bit different. Any yeah. favorite things for right now? Are, are you talking about a favorite thing that I like that people send me that makes me might like it, it might lead me to read their script? Yeah, maybe that or, or what you do. And it, it could, it, cause it used to be pitch decks. I feel like now it's like videos a little more normal, but what are your thoughts on that? I think if you have a strong log line as, or that is really, that really um, captures your project, that that's the best thing that you can put out there because if it's super well crafted and put together, that'll pique interest and people do want to read a script. They are looking for a script, right? Um, I think sometimes pitch videos cannot be helpful because if you don't have the resources to do it right, or maybe they're not, maybe you have somebody that you put in it that you think is the right actor for a particular part, that's not the actor they would put in it. 
right? And they might go, oh, yeah, I'm not really interested. Or they might think you have attachments, right? And attachments are almost one of the worst things that you can do is to already commit to things before you send it to people. So I think pitch decks are still really good because they give, um, you know, you should give an idea. Like I, this character would be great as someone like these characters, like these actors, um, but not specifically that person, right? Um, so I, I think I probably respond more if it's a strong log line and if there's a pitch deck that's well put together. Well, we've covered a lot of good advice already. Tell me about your book. Why did you decide to write this book, Shooting for the Stars? Well, <laughs> you know, when you make films for 25 years, you like to think that you've accumulated some good knowledge, right? And um, so over the years, I I tend to be really helpful um, to other people, other filmmakers. And I, I just like teaching. I like sharing knowledge and that sort of thing. So a lot of times I would mentor people or, you know, I used to have a Patreon page and I would offer uh, for people to make a film alongside me and things like that. So I felt like it was sort of a natural progression to share my knowledge in one place. And um, I was turning the Patreon course that I had done into a book. And I was like, oh my gosh, like the way you talk, and the way it should be written on it. I'm like I need to start over. <laughs> so, so I literally just literally wrote out um, all the topics that I go through. Every time I make a film, I do the same thing. I've done 25 different projects over 25 years. And so I'm like, okay, this is everything I do. Every step I take from, you know, acquiring a script or writing a script, preparing it to delivering it. And then I just started taking each one of those and writing really what I do around that, around that, whatever the topic was. And then I had a book. <laughs> I was like, you know, I, I put it together over about a, about a year. Um, it was took a little bit longer because we moved in the middle of that. But um, I just really wanted to share my knowledge and have a place that I could point people if they were wanted advice on something. You know, a lot of times people ask me about fundraising. How do you raise money for films? Or, you know, how do you find distributors or how do you cast a star or whatever? And so, and it's, and a lot of the, in fact, all the things that we've already talked about, there's some mention of it, right? In the book, something, some uh, knowledge about it. So hopefully, you know, people interested in making a film or even if they've made films before, it's a great refresher, you know, and it's just, it's, it's my way of making films. It's not the only way. Uh, one of the th things I love about making films is it's not a science, you know, there's a lot of different ways to pull films together. And, um, but this has worked for me 25 different times. So. <laughs> and, and a lot of this stuff is not in film school, which makes it perfect for a book. Um, what are some of the, the most common questions or misconceptions you hear from other young filmmakers? I think the biggest thing that people think is that they can take their script and they can send it to an actor or an actor's manager or agent. And that actor or act, actor's representation is going to read it and go, oh, this is the best thing I've ever heard. 
my, my, my talent has to do this and that they'll attach themselves and that will help bring the money. Right. And it's just, it's such a misconception. It's, it's not the way it works. It's, that's not how you go about getting talent attached. And, and, you know, I've just, it just recently, I talked to a, a friend who I've worked with, who is, uh, he does a different craft in the industry, right? So he's been about the, around the industry for a long time. And he has his first script. And he was saying that to me, he's like, Oh, I want to, I think this person is the best person for it. And I want to get it to their agent. And once I, because we were talking about funding, he was asking me about funding. And he goes, I want to get to their agent and get a letter of intent. And then I'll go and I'll use that to raise some money. I'm like, well, you're probably not going to be able to do that because that's an A-list actor. (laughs) And, and they just don't do that. They can't, they can't, you know? And so you have to be more real, realistic about the ways you go about trying to pull it together. Because we do hear those stories. It does happen, but it's not normal. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, and honestly, I think when it does happen, somebody has a relationship with somebody And so it's not like you're reaching out to somebody you don't know. Like if you know an actor that you can, I I know plenty of actors. I've, I've, you know, I've become really good friends with Michael Gross, who's been in, you know, Family Ties and Tremors and uh, tons of other stuff, but he's a wonderful actor and a fantastic um, friend and a great mentor to other actors, but he's been involved in like three projects that I've done. And so I can go to him and, and, you know, bring up something to him, but, you know, if you don't have that relationship, it's really unrealistic to think that someone's just going to, you can just send something to someone and they're going to read it. I mean, you can't even send something to most directors or producers and they'll just read it. So why would an A-list talent do that? I mean, it's, it's just unrealistic. But I do think one of the the one thing in the book that is probably the most important thing, and it's the thing that everyone says, I'm the most well-known for. Like, if this happens, then the film is going to get made. And that's, I set a date, right? If I say I'm going to make a film on a certain date, or I'm going to start a film on a certain date, then the film gets made on that date, right? And it's And it's just people have gotten used to the fact that when I say I'm going to do something, I do something. It goes back to that thing I was telling you before, where you make a commitment and people see the commitment taking place and they know you're going to do it. So what that does is over the course of time, and I'm sure you know this being a filmmaker is, you know, you work with people that um, whether it be crew or actors or whatever, that they know how you work, you have developed a relationship with them and they want to keep working with you. Right. So all of those people, when I say that they know, you know, the DPs know, the editors know, the composers know that if I'm going to, if I'm going to make a film on a certain time, that it's going to, that's going to happen. So it's just, it, you know, it's committing to something. I think a lot of people talk about wanting to do something, but they don't make a commitment themselves to do that. And they don't, or they keep putting it off. And the more you put it off, the farther away from getting made it gets because people start to not believe you. It's like, you know, the boy crying wolf, you know, if you do it enough times or don't do it enough times, no one's going to believe you when you really are ready. 
Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. If it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.